This morning, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 37 to 49. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, 37 through the end of the chapter, verse 49. This is the word of Jesus Christ. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap, For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed. And its destruction was complete. Before we consider this passage, let's pray.
Our Father, you sent your Son to do many things for us, and one of those things was to speak these words. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son. We thank you that in all things he spoke the truth. He has given us what we need. And, Lord, we pray that hearing these words, we will be able to put them into practice. Father, this requires us to be able to not only discern the meaning, it requires us to discern how to apply the meaning in our circumstances. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you will help us to do that. Help us to apply your word. Father, I pray that your spirit, even now, will search our hearts and minds to bring us into alignment with your heart with your thoughts. Father, I pray that this church will be a place where you are well represented, where we can reveal your glory, and where people can come and meet the risen Christ without obstacle. Lord, you have received us, the most unworthy people in all of creation, and adopted us into your family. Help us now to learn how to live as adopted children of the King of kings and Lord of lords. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have never taken a break as long in a series as I've taken in this one. Uh, The last four or five weeks, I can't even remember now. Uh, I've taken a break through the Gospel of Luke. I'm very reluctant to ever do that. Uh, even when there's special events and special circumstances. I like to work through uh, systematically as much as possible themes or books. I think if you do that, then you will end up discharging the whole counsel of God. It's when we sort of get really choosy that we tend to miss things and avoid things and harp on things out of proportion. So taking a very long break. So I've had uh, over a month to think about uh, this text. And this sermon. And I find myself in the very uh, awkward position of still not knowing quite what to say. Uh, I don't know what to say, and I don't even know the order in which to say things. So I have a few things on paper. Uh, It may not be very helpful. I'm going to try to follow it out a little bit. And uh, I'm just going to trust that the Lord's Spirit gives us the grace that we need. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to work through the text very quickly. And I'm going to seek to apply it, uh, frankly, in a way that I wish I didn't have to. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. This presupposes that there are people who will be judged, and there are people who will be condemned. And you can be part of that group. One of the ways to be part of that group is to adopt a critical, judgmental, censorious spirit. One of the ways to guarantee that you will be judged is for you to arrogate to yourself the responsibility of being God's judges of other people in this world. With the measure you use, that will be the measure God uses against you. 
which if you're hoping to receive grace, may be a really, really good motivator to treat people with grace. If you want to receive grace from God, and that's the measure you want to be used against you, it would probably be a very wise idea to treat people with mercy and grace as well. With the measure you use, that's the measure God will use. If you judge, you will be judged. If you condemn, you will be condemned. Now, if I had more time, and if I was in a different circumstance, I would take a lot of time to work through sort of the uh, species of tolerance that we have in our society today, where the only Bible verse anyone happens to know is, do not judge. And I'd try to argue that, you know, clearly Jesus doesn't mean you can never make any kind of judgment. In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about not judging, he immediately goes on to talk about not throwing pearls before swine, which means that you can identify what a pearl is and you can judge who swine are. So there's no way that this is meaning never make any judgments. If that was the case, then the rest of the New Testament would be completely contradictory to what Jesus says. It's a maxim, which is reasonable. That, you know, if someone has said something that can be taken in an absolutely ridiculous way or in a sensible, intelligent way, common courtesy dictates you take the sensible reading. So what Jesus is saying here is not never make any sort of judgment whatsoever. He is saying do not have a judgmental critical spirit. Do not judge other people's hearts on the basis of what you see. You don't know very much about them. You don't know very much about their circumstances. You are not... They are judged, so you be very careful with what you do and with what you say, and even, I would suggest, with what you think, because what you think is what will come out of your mouth eventually. So be very, very careful. Now, it is worth saying, too, that when people say, when people accuse you of being judgmental, it may be worth noting that even for them to accuse you of being judgmental, they have made a judgment call about you, which may be true. But then if their whole idea is that you can't judge anyone and they're saying that you are failing that standard, then if that's really what they mean, they're contradicting their own stand, right? So we want to be a little bit careful about that. So I get a little tired of everyone talking about how Christians are so judgmental and with such a judgmental tone in their voice you know, when they say it. However, Christians can be judgmental. Uh, the world is not the only place where you find people who are hypocritical and who condemn others. So be careful. On the positive side, give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured out into your lap. And this may seem almost nonsensical. I mean, what on earth does this mean? I don't really want lots of things pressed down, shaken together and running over, poured out onto my lap. You know, it sounds like I spilled my soup at dinner. You know, what, is, what does this mean? Well, you know, culturally, you'll probably remember in the book of Ruth uh, that when people went out to harvest... Some had baskets, but some, they also had long flowing robes. Probably the closest equivalent we could think of today would be uh, like wearing an apron. So they'd have an apron, you'd go out and you could fill up the apron, kind of fold it up and it would create a very large pocket. Now, if you've done any baking, and of course I have, uh, you know that when you bake a cake or whatever and you have your measuring cup, you can, you can scoop up uh, a flour or whatever it is and and when it sits in loose, you haven't maximized the, the volume capacity. So you can, you can press it down. 
right? Or perhaps, I'm not sure you know, how many of you love our uh, garbage and recycling program here in Guelph, but you know, we, in our house, we have a, this enormous blue bin you know, in our garage, and every once in a while, we have to sort of stand in it to press down the recycling because there's too much. So you can press it down, and then you create more room. So what what is being Jesus is saying here is, you don't just get filled up. You get maximally filled. If you're generous in your judgments, then you will have not just a good measure poured in. It'll be pressed down, create some more space, press, put some more in, press it down. So you're getting as much as you can possibly get. So if you're generous, God will be very generous to you. On the other hand, he tells this parable about the blind leading the blind and a student not being above their teacher. If the person leading can't see, what benefit are they to the person following them? If we teach people to have judgmental spirits, then we can only expect people to be judgmental. We are to set a higher bar. We are to provide a positive example. We are to reveal the glory and goodness and compassion of Jesus Christ in this world to the lost and to one another. That is what we are meant to do. But if we can't follow Jesus properly, you can't expect the world to learn to follow Jesus Christ properly. And if you are in a place where there is all sorts of legalistic teaching, then you can't expect people who sit under that to be anything other than legalists. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. And then this very, very famous illustration. The plank and the speck of sawdust. Now, what's interesting about this is that the word that Jesus uses for plank, or some translations will have beam, it refers to, it's a construction term. Remember, Jesus was a carpenter, and, and actually in the Greek, you know, the, the word we translate carpenter is more expansive than that. It means that Jesus, today we'd say he's sort of like a general contractor. Okay? He wasn't just woodworking. Uh, he, you know, he probably worked in stone and all kinds of different things. He is a, sort of a contractor. And the word that Jesus uses is drawn from the trade. It specifies a load-bearing beam. So today we could almost say, you know, why do you care about the little bit of dust in your brother's eye when you have a poured concrete foundation in your own? You know, it's it's supposed to be so absurd. You're going to go, it's actually pretty dangerous to have someone try to come up to you and remove a bit of sawdust from your eye if they have a load-bearing beam projecting out of their face. You know, like, you probably don't want that person messing around with your eyes, right? And so Jesus is, he's being a little bit humorous, a bit of hyperbole here. But the idea is, how could you possibly think you are in a position to help someone else? If you have such a glaring problem yourself. And how can you even see it? How can you even see that they have a problem? with the enormity of what's clouding your vision. No, take care of yourself first. You're the one with the load-bearing beam in your eye. Get it out first. Then you might be able to help 
your brother. I mean, this doesn't mean that if people have faults, we just ignore them because, well, I have bigger problems. No, it means that if I recognize I have bigger problems than you do, I need to take care of my bigger problems first so I can actually help you. Well, where does all this come from? Verses 43 through 45 are pretty clear. These sorts of attitudes come from evil hearts. In the same way that a bad tree will produce bad fruit, an evil heart will produce evil attitudes and actions and words. What you say, what you do, how you treat people, how you conduct yourself is always a testimony to what your character is really like. Every time. Every time. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you're critical and judgmental, it's because you have an evil heart. When you use critical and judgmental words, it's because you are speaking out of the evil that is inside of you. Because where there is a good heart, there is good fruit. Where there is bad fruit, it is always a sign that there is a problem with the tree, with the heart. Now, I want to make a few comments at this point about our business meeting last week. And this is not actually what I'm going to be talking about later. So this is not the point. This is not what I'm actually bothered about. I'll get to that. I want to use our business meeting as an illustration of how easy it is to be judgmental and critical, though. I have had uh, two big ideas in my, my little life. I have thought, I thought, I suggested, that we should take the money that we had from the land sale and we should give it away over 10 years, $200,000 a year. That was, I thought that was a good idea. That's not what we're doing. I'm not mad about that. I'm really not. It's not my place. Uh, I have bad ideas all the time. I do. I can live with that. That's one of the things actually I love about congregational votes. I don't think that certain sort of that certain people should dictate agendas to everyone else. I believe that God distributes wisdom and gifts by His Spirit in the body, and that it is best to let the Spirit speak. We share our views, hopefully trying to discern the will of God. But at the end, the last thing I want is to unilaterally call the shots. I don't want that. I can't even live my own life properly, let alone tell everyone else here how to live theirs, right? And how what we should be doing as a church. So that was my, my one idea. Second idea was a little bit more radical. And uh, I have said, not publicly and not to everyone, but I've said you know, different times, I actually think it would be wonderful if we sold the building and if we joined with another like-minded church in the city uh, to free up millions of dollars in property, but also to free up hundreds of thousands of dollars per year in, re- to me, redundant electrical bills and janitorial services and you know insurance. And then if we could save all of that money, I mean, just just try to imagine how how much. I mean, any guesses? How many millions and millions and millions of dollars? of God's resources do you think are tied up in wealth in evangelical churches every year just because we all have different buildings? I think it's a lot. I imagine it's a lot. I wonder how many millions of dollars a year are spent in wealth heating those buildings and maintaining those buildings. I bet it's a lot. 
So I say, if churches can split, I don't know why churches can't unify. It doesn't I, I seem to be pretty much alone in that? But uh, I seem to think that that's the case. I don't know why we can't have. I don't know why we can't consider that. So that was my second idea. We're not doing either one of those two things. So this is not me upset about that because I'm not. I'm really not. We work together. We try to discern. But it would be very easy for me to throw a self-righteous pity party and say, no one understands missions the way I do. What's wrong with all those people? I have all these great ideas and, you know, and on and on. They just don't get missions. They don't get the importance of the gospel around the world. And, you, and what I've done is I've moved from my opinion to condemning your heart. But I have no right to do that. And neither does anyone else. So some people say, you know what, what about the mission field in Guelph? What about all the people we're trying to reach in our own city? What about having a home for onside? What about the blessing that RCA is? You know, what about, I've heard some of the, the people in the older generation here at the church saying, you know what, we want, if we're able to do this now, we want to do this so that the younger generation growing up doesn't need to, to put tons of money into the building over the next 25, 30, 40, 50 years. We want to give this as a gift to them. It's not for us because we're not going to, some of us are not going to be here really to see it. But we want the next generation to have a home where they can worship God and have a building that's suited for ministry without lots of ongoing expenses for upkeep. Okay, well, listen. Foreign missions, you know, outfitting the building for ministry. Like, I think both of those are actually good things. Right? So people say, well, we made the decision to give it away, so we should do that. Other people say, well, we had no idea what the building was like when we did that. New facts give new, in, new information, creates new thinking, so perhaps we did what was best at the time, or we, what we, we wanted to, what we thought was best at the time, and now, as God gives more light, we can, in wisdom, make other decisions. Well, that's fine. Well, whatever you think is right or wrong, it certainly doesn't mean that the people who think differently from you are some sort of idiots. And it certainly doesn't mean that the people who think differently from you are somehow immoral and evil and wicked. As if you're the one who knows what God wants and everyone else is just, you know, if they were just as holy and spiritual as you, they think just like you do. Listen, I'm not saying anyone here thinks that. But in my heart, it's very easy to start tipping into those sorts of thoughts. Jesus here says, make sure, make sure that you're not condemning other people. They're my servant, right? To, Paul says, who are you? Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master they stand or fall. And to me that means that here we collectively and prayerfully try to make decisions and the results are up to God. I'm not the judge. And I will preach and teach the word of God not one bit differently. Whether we give all the money away or whether we renovate the building, it's not going to change my ministry to you. That might be very depressing for you because you might want my ministry to get better, but it's not going to. You know, it's, it's not going to change what I do. Like, I'm not going to sort of take my ball and go home and, and or whatever. Because I really believe there's something to the body. The body collectively makes decisions. I think that's a glorious thing. I think it's a beautiful thing. And I actually think one of the wonderful things about it is it also teaches us humility. And it teaches us, frankly, to be good sports and to support each other and love each other and go forward together and without the contingency, we'll, we'll all support it as long as it's what I think is best. It's no, no, it's, it's much bigger than that. Much bigger than that. Now, this is what I'm concerned about, though. We were talking a lot about 
creating spaces for people who come in. That's very nice. And you know, I talked to Brian a lot uh, this week, you know, and, and Brian was saying, you know, he feels like he pretty miscommunicated uh, last week, you know, didn't really express what was on his heart, and very, very well. One of the things that, you know, Brian is trying to say, and I agree with this completely, is that, you know, the the function of the building, you know, it, the form that that takes has to follow our ministries to people. And so we need to figure out how we're going to minister to people and then look at creating space where we can do that effectively. And I don't know how you could disagree with that. Okay, So we need to do that. We need to put people first. How, If we're going to use this building as a tool for people, let's think about people. Right? How are we going to how are we going to minister to them? What kind of spaces do we need to minister to people? Well, that's all very true. We want to have outreach. We want people to come here. We want them to feel welcome. But what are we doing to the people who do come here now? How are we treating them? Because I don't care if we have a really nice building, and I don't care if lots of people come here, if we're not a healthy place for them to come to. So what are we doing about that? I don't think we have enough committees here at the church. So I've started another one. And no one knows about this one, except me. I'm not on the property renovation committee. But I'm starting a church renovation committee because the building's not the church. And we can have a really lovely building and a really rotten church. And we can have a really godly, wonderful church in a really rotten building. And if I get to pick one, I'm going for the godly church every time. That's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about our church. So... The Church Renovation Committee meets every day. And you're part of it, whether you want to be or not. Well, if you were here uh, three and a half years ago or so, you may remember that I put on a pair of jeans and got up here and I preached. I was pretty angry, hopefully justifiably, because someone had come to this church wearing a pair of jeans. And they were turned away at the door because it wasn't appropriate to go into the auditorium dressed like that. I don't remember it all very clearly. I don't remember being pleased about that. I remember preaching about that and I was kind of upset. Well, I would have resigned on the spot if I had thought it would happen again. But God in his grace sometimes doesn't allow us to know the future before it, take, before it unfolds. About six weeks ago, someone told me that they know someone very well who was coming here who felt that 
they were treated differently depending on what they wore. One Sunday, people were friendly. Another Sunday, people weren't quite as welcoming. And they began to notice a bit of a correlation between how people responded to them and what they were wearing on any given Sunday. And I sort of blew that off. So I said, no, 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 we're, you know what, there's lots of people who come here and they tell me how friendly the church is. Maybe it's just perception. The next week, I found out about someone else who was coming here, who doesn't come here anymore, and as far as I understand, doesn't go to any church at all. Who wasn't told they couldn't come in, but who had comments directed to them about how they really didn't need to be here. Didn't really fit in. So why, why would, why do they need to be here? Why, why does, why do you come to this place? Sort of the message. So. That leaves me here today. A little upset. If I had to preach this sermon six weeks ago, I would have been livid. Just livid. But one of the things that's interesting about me is that I can get very angry about very petty things. It's a trait that I have that I I detest, but it's true. Very quickly get angry about silly little meaningless things. I find it very easy. You know, I try to be a little bit constrained. I I could very easily develop a habit of just yelling. Lose my temper and yell. That could very easily be me all the time. There's a stage beyond that for me, though, where I'm too angry to yell. It's like a it's like a white hot trembling rage, where I can be really calm because I basically have to be, or else I'm going to jail for murder. <laughs> and so I've learned to seethe inwardly sometimes. The first night, the night I went to bed after hearing about this, I was so angry. I was just so angry. The next night, I went to bed and I was so crushed. I was so heartbroken. I think... And these are the people I know about. How many other people have had an experience like this who don't, who don't tell other people? They, they just drift away. So. So today I find myself beyond mad. I emailed the individual. I apologized. Didn't think I'd have to write two pastoral emails like that in less than four years here. Or anywhere. I wrote them in an email and I apologized and I tried to say something along the lines of this. Listen, you don't need to come here. Please do not write off church. Please go somewhere else where you will be welcomed. And the bigger thing, more importantly, is please, please do not confuse this with Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who says, all that my Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will never drive away. And so if we drive people away, which we do, which we have in very recent memory, 
then we are simply not representing Jesus, who is the one who welcomes all sinners. We're all very pious. You know, Billy Graham crusades, just as I am, without one plea. What about everyone else? Do we let them come just as they are? Or do we have other expectations of them? Well, James 2 tells us that in the church, they had a problem. They were accepting people who were rich and rejecting people who were poor. And so if a rich man walked in with a gold ring on his finger and pretty impressive, say we say, you know, pulled up in a nice you know, luxury vehicle and obviously well-dressed and, and rich, the church was very welcoming. They're very welcoming. Oh, we have a great seat for you. And that person would leave saying, what a friendly bunch. There's also a poor man who comes in and they say, oh, sorry, the seat, the seat, good seats are for the rich people. You stand over there. Or you sit at my feet. James says, have you not, when you discriminate, have you not violated the law? Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? And I've been thinking about that, and, and I'm trying, it actually, it, it helped me. Because so many people have been here and said how welcoming and friendly the church is. I think, well, how, how can this be? How can we be so schizophrenic in terms of welcoming, being really welcoming, and, and not being welcoming? And I thought, well, well, the church in James 2 was, was welcoming and not welcoming. They were just selectively welcoming. They didn't welcome everyone. You had to be dressed right. You had to look a certain way. Then you were more than welcome. But the thing that actually, and this is, I shouldn't have, sometimes, you know, you get insights into things you don't want them. I had a little uh, insight into that James 2 text this week. It actually really bothered me. I wish I didn't have it. They made the poor man sit in the corner or sit at their feet, but they still invited him to stay. They didn't ask him to leave. They didn't tell him it wasn't appropriate for him to stay. So as wicked as they were, at least the guy stayed. Whereas we turned them out. I've tried to be really careful to think about why we might do that. There isn't really a good answer. But I'm going to try to be very, very gracious here. Perhaps some people think, and I don't know, Perhaps some people think that when you come to church, you have an audience with the king, and so you should dress well as a sign of respect. I'll grant that. That, That's fair enough. Fair enough. My problem is that the king metaphor breaks down very quickly when you push it. First of all, God being the king is one metaphor. He's also a shepherd. The sheep don't get dressed up to be in the presence of the shepherd. We are also his children. And you are completely wrong if you imagine for one moment that the children of kings and queens around the world are denied access to their parents unless they're wearing a suit or a dress. God has also been with you every moment of your life. God was with you yesterday. He's omnipresent. If you weren't wearing a suit yesterday, it's not like you were denied access to God. God has seen you in the shower. God is not overly impressed with your fashion. God, maybe this is sort of revelatory. God did not sit in heaven this morning 
looking down at you going, oh my goodness, I really, really hope they pick the red tie. I just know I'm going to feel really worshipped and validated when they wear the red tie. You know, oh, I, I, I love how they're, they're coordinating their scarf and their earrings. I love when they do that. I'm so impressed when they walk into my presence dressed that way. If they didn't coordinate, if it was a bit of a mismatch, I, I wouldn't listen to their singing. But, but they're coordinating their outfits. I'm so glad they're dressing up. Because that's what I care about. No, I, I think in my reading of Scripture, God cares about the heart. God cares about what's inside. And if that's the case, then none of us are ever pretty enough to come into the presence of God. We're never clean enough to come into the presence of God. We never have earned the right to come into the presence of God. So if what we're telling people is, yeah, you know, we want everyone to come and know Jesus, but you better dress up first. That's the condition for hearing the gospel. Then there are very serious problems. And it's not with them. It's with us. So maybe people think that it's disrespectful to show up to church, you know, wearing a t-shirt or jeans. That's fine. That's that's your opinion. Um, to be very honest, and I'm not just saying this, to be very honest, personal comfort, if I was not the pastor, I would show up to church in jeans every Sunday. I would. And if you would take that then as a sign that I disrespect God, that's up to you. But do you really think that people make a conscious decision to show up here dressed to offend and disrespect God by casual attire. Do you really think they do? Because I don't. But I will say they do. I will say some people have showed up here dressed casually to offend God. And I then want to say that if that's the case, the place I need them to be is here so they can hear about who God is. So they can hear about the gospel. Because if they want to show their rebellion to God by wearing a t-shirt, which is really, if you want to rebel against God, that's pretty weak. Okay? But if that's how you want to rebel against God, and you want to show up here, you're not going to learn about God out there. And so you need to, you need to show up and, you know, you need to, you need to leave during the sermon and, and go have a smoke. You know, go ahead. And come back in smelling like smoke. I don't care. Because you're not going to hear about Jesus out there having your cigarette. You're going to hear about Jesus in here. So if you want to, sh- if you want to show up disrespecting God, good. Because there's a God who saves rebellious sinners and disrespectful people like you. Be here. This is exactly where I want people like that. Those are the people I'm going to welcome in. And I want to be very careful because this is not about me. Because I was very angry. I was very sad. I had a little time where I was also just, just embarrassed. Because people will talk about what happens at Crestwick Baptist Church. And I've been around church long enough to know that the very next question is, who's the pastor there? I know that. And so we get a reputation for this, and it is a reflection on me. I had to be very careful before God confessing that I was getting too concerned with my own reputation. My reputation belongs to God, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. So it's not about me being embarrassed, but I was. I was deeply ashamed to be associated with that. So, what are we going to do? Well, I partly don't know. What do we do if it happens again? Well, 
there is an expression. There will be hell to pay. But that's not going to happen. You don't need to worry about that. Because as a Christian, there is hell to pay every day of your life. Because, Revelation 12, the dragon has been cast down from heaven and goes off to make war against the lady and her children, the followers of the Lamb, and he rages on the earth because he knows his time is short. When you become a Christian, you sign up to pay hell every day of your life. Because the dragon rages against you. You will experience the wrath of Satan if you are a Christian. You may as well... If you became a Christian, you didn't know that. I'm sorry you didn't read the fine print. It's part of the contract. Okay? So you're going to face the wrath of the dragon. You are. But that's okay. Martin Luther said, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You don't need to worry about when there is hell to pay. You need to worry about when there is heaven to pay. Because the dragon is not the only one who has wrath. For the wrath of God abides upon the wicked every day. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the wickedness and unrighteousness of wicked men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They cry to the mountains to fall on them and the hills to cover them. For the great day of the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb has come. It is the great day of the wrath of the Lamb. And who can stand? Do not worry when there is hell to pay. But if this happens again, there will be heaven to pay. If this happens again, then by God, not because I can say it, or not because I can actualize it, but by God, if this happens again, you have been warned that God is not to be trifled with, and there is a day of wrath Jesus says, the destruction of that house was complete. Be forewarned. God is not to be played with. And God is in the business of saving sinners. And if you turn sinners away from the gospel, then you are, you are putting yourself into a position of opposition against God. Hear me. Don't call him Lord, Lord, and not put his words into practice. Do not call him Lord, Lord, and arrogate to yourself being the fashion police of a religious country club. Do not do it. Now, here's what I say. I didn't, I'm not the one who said it. Now, I obviously don't think it was the right thing to say. Like, do you, I mean, some people are going through people's minds. Like, do you really think that God's standing there going to heaven and going, that's right, you tell that person, you tell them I don't want them in that church because they're not dressed appropriately. Like, what, what on earth do people think sometimes? That's a good thing I'm not angry. So what are we going to do? Well, first of all, I didn't do it, but I'm going to take responsibility for it. Because we are a church corporately. 
And what one person does is a representation of the entire church. And so I'm going to take responsibility for this as much as I can. I've already apologized to the individual. We are Crestwick. We are responsible. In the book of Joshua, chapter 5, the children of Israel have finally finished their 40 years of wandering in the desert. Finally. And they cross the Jordan River miraculously by the grace of God. And they have something very interesting that happens. They have a covenant ceremony because the male children born during their time in the desert were not circumcised according to the covenant. And so everyone who was born in that era is circumcised in the promised land because covenant fidelity to God is a prerequisite for conquering the land. And they all take responsibility for what they've, for what has happened. They all stand up and they say, we might not have done it, but we together are responsible. And so I realize there are some discontinuities, but this is an analogy perhaps for us. I personally want to be part of a church where everyone is welcome. Whether they are well-dressed or poorly dressed, whether they are rich or poor, whether they have piercings or no piercings, tattoos or no tattoos, whether they are smoking or non-smoking, married or single, young or old, male or female. I want to be part of a church where all sociological categories are irrelevant, a church where everyone is welcome, a church that is more concerned with internals than externals, a church where anyone can come to Jesus and keep coming to Jesus without ever being driven away. And if you also want to be part of a church like this, and if you are grieved that people have come here and have been driven away on the basis of externals, then I want you to stand up. And before God, before God, if you are on your feet, you are testifying that this has not been acceptable or pleasing to God. And you are testifying that as it is up to you before God, you will not be part of this anymore. We can't change the past. The Israelites could not change what their forefathers had done by lack of faith. But you can, before God, start fresh where you are by his grace. If you are truly repentant, if you are standing, it is a sign that you, before God, not before people, but before God, are testifying to a genuine desire in your heart to be a place where people are welcome to hear about Jesus. And I tell you this, if you stand hypocritically today, then you stand to bring judgment upon yourself because God knows your heart. I'm going to pray. There's no closing song today. 
I'm going to pray and then we can, well, I guess I'm going to leave at some point. But we don't gather to have services that have a cookie cutter format. We gather to meet with God and get our lives straight. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will forgive me because I I might not be so bold as to say things like that, but often maybe I think them. I discriminate against people in my heart all the time because I have evil thoughts and I stand as an evil judge. I pray that you will forgive me and I pray that you will also, Lord, come here and cleanse us. Not just forgive us, but cleanse us. Make us holy make us like Jesus. God, I pray that you will forgive us. I pray that you will lead us into forgiveness by your Son. And Father, more than any, I just pray for those who have come here and have been turned away. Lord, I pray that they will find Jesus. And Lord, I pray that there will be churches in this city where they can go, where they are welcome and accepted. But Lord, we also desire to be a place that's safe for sinners to come and meet with Jesus. And to the extent that we haven't been that, Lord, we we own it. We are the ones who are responsible, no one else. But, Father God, change us. And, Lord, if we will not be changed, then shut us down. Lord, I pray that you will close the doors of this church forever if we will not be a place that welcomes people to know Jesus. Father, I pray that you will bring people in. We do pray that. We want people to come here, but Lord, not at the expense of the good of their heart. We would rather have this place empty than full if it's not a healthy place for people to be. Lord, help us to know that the church isn't for our comfort, but it's for your glory. This is your church. Lord, by your spirit, help us to go forward in victory. Lord, help us to grow Help us to go forward to higher ground. Lord, let let the wilderness wanderings be over. Help us to, in sincerity of heart, be right before you, circumcised in heart, and then bring us forward into the promised land. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in grace and peace.